From the highest point on Florida State's campus and the hottest room in Seminole Sports, this is Tomahawk Talk. We are live on 89.7 FM here in Tallahassee and streaming online at wvfs.fsu.edu. I'm your host, Gary Putnick, and the Florida State Seminoles have downed their first top five opponent since 2014 with their 31-28 win over the North Carolina Tar Heels on Saturday night. We'll get to all that and from that game along with some World Series talk because we got a new we got some new contenders in this one or a new contender we'll get some nfl and finally we're going to be getting to some more around the nation college football which will be nice but first as always i'm joined by my friend and co-host austin reynolds austin do we talk about an hour later definitely later because this first half of the show recapping fsu's win over unc that's going to be very positive i think reflecting on that big win so I'm going to save the the down in the dumps talk for later. All right. And if you guys don't know, the down in the dumps talk is Austin's Atlanta Braves. You all... He just said. He just said. I'm just yeah, mentioning it. because some, <laughs> hey, maybe, hey, we might have a new listener coming on. They don't know Austin's a big Braves fan. So Austin's Braves, they kind of lost. So we'll talk about that later on the show in the second half. And like we always do, we also have Sebastian Angel Riano in the fish tank. Sebastian, from one end of the spectrum, that is Austin, to your end of the spectrum, it feels like Tampa Bay has reached a golden age of sports, possibly. How does uh, it well, feel? A golden age has to last for more than you know a, a certain period of time. But the, when it's Tampa, I this would, feels like a golden age for it, me. It really does. It is pretty. It is a pretty spectacular time to be a um, a fan of Tampa Bay sports, which has um, been a long time coming. Let's say, uh, you know, the Lightning have been good for forever. It feels like, and it finally kind of paid off um, at the beginning of this month, and uh, now the um, now the Rays are back in the pennant for the first time since the last major economic collapse that we've had to deal with, which was in 2008. And um, like we like we said, um, we'll talk about it later in the show. But I uh, I have some thoughts about um, the uh, World Series that I am uh, kind of apprehensive to share, but we'll we'll get to it eventually. All right, perfect. And last but not least, we have Maxwell Rundy coming on for this first half. Max, just like Sebastian, you are also a Rays fan. What are your thoughts on this World Series and your raised chances? Because you won't be able, you won't be on for the second half to talk uh, World Series. I just couldn't be more thrilled because after we went up 3-0, I was just so confident we had to win one game, and then just sitting there watching just this torture of them losing three straight. I couldn't even bear it. I didn't even watch the last game. I was at the FSU game. It was just, and it worked. So didn't leave. Heard they were up the whole time, and I was like, can't watch it if they're winning. You know this means you cannot watch the rest of the World Series now, because you didn't watch this game, Game 7. Now you're not allowed to watch if you want your Rays to win. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. A small price to pay for salvation. I guess that'll that'll be it. But uh, we'll get to more, like I said, more MLB talk on the second half of the show. But we also have Belle Dougherty on Twitter tonight, at talk underscore Tomahawk. So get on there and show her some love and give her a follow. So let's get to the big news from the weekend, and that is Florida State football. They somehow, some way, came out with a win in Doak Campbell on Saturday night, winning 31 to 28 over the North number five North Carolina Tar Heels. They had a 24 point lead at one point in the second quarter. It eventually led to a 31 to seven lead going into the half, and then Florida State just did not score a point after coming out of the gate so hot. I mean, Florida State in that first half they had 274 total yards of offense. They finished with around, uh, I think that's another 100 or so in the second half. So really, like Gossam was saying before the show, a tale of two halves. Because it was really good at the beginning and then just nothing at the end. So 
Florida State kept on and somehow managed to hold on to this win thanks to their defense, really, because with the pick six from Joshua Kando and then a couple blocked punts in that first half and then just some overall stops and maybe a few lucky breaks from some North Carolina wide receivers, Florida State was able to come out with this win. So, Austin, I want to ask you, does it feel like FSU has turned a corner? I don't think so. I mean, the first half performance is obviously incredible. Nobody expected FSU to put up 31, be up 24 points really at any point in this game. But that second half performance, just wasting drives, leaving at least 10 points on the field. I The one that sticks out as most egregious to me is the 54-55 yard run from the LaDamian Webb to get deep into UNC territory. They got pushed back by a personal foul or a personal foul penalty and then a missed field goal. That is something you absolutely cannot afford because I thought it was going to take more than 31 points to win this game. Thankfully for FSU, it did not. They were able to hold on. But I mean, just stuff like that, leaving easy scoring opportunities on the board is really concerning for me, despite the win. Especially getting into the red zone like they did those two times. But it also, this game, it felt a lot like the Boise State game from a couple years ago, considering also the score that it finished with. I mean, it was very close in that final tally mark there. But Florida State, somehow, they were able to just hold on to this one and it didn't feel like this was a team of floor of yesteryear for Florida State. This one, they actually held on, they fought, and they didn't let it slip away because the team that we saw in that Boise State game just let it all go downhill way too quickly, and they didn't fight at all. This team in this game, they continued to fight. They continued to put pressure on Howell, who played really well, in my opinion, and just couldn't get it done at the end, but still... This team and the defense, really, I want to give huge props to this defense because they were the reason why Florida State won this game. And Marvin Wilson, I know we've been we've been dogging them a lot this year, but they stepped up and they held, they put up stops when they had to. So that was huge. But Max, I want to get to you on this one. Uh, have did it feel how different did this game feel at least watching wise from a perspective? Because I know FSU, they just have not had that kind of fight in past seasons, but obviously in this game against North Carolina, they did. Well, I actually was lucky enough to be at the Boise State game last year as well, and the games were just eerily similar in that we just dominate, or FSU dominates and just goes up by a huge lead, and then it just slowly goes away. And the biggest difference for me that I saw in this game was two things. One kind of two in this one it was a night game and that meant all of our fans stayed there and the place was erupting it was just a great stadium great environment heckling and north carolina players like crazy it was just exactly what you would expect from a college football game at a huge college football school and then the other thing was as much as i want to downplay norville's play calling and just overall bad second half decisions the one big difference he had compared to Taggart is Taggart, he, he really enjoyed that uh, fast-paced system. But we would have, or FSU would have like one-minute drives when up by like 24. Not saying we had like seven, or Florida State had like seven-minute drives, but they were a lot better developed in a sense. Even though everyone knew it was a run play and it was just not well done still, it was slightly better, and that's, any improvement is improvement. Yeah, that's well put. Any prov- any improvement is improvement. And for this game, a win's a win, no matter how it comes to you. Florida State needs wins like these. And it really is going to help them going forward. And I don't know, it for me, this game, 
it means a lot because Florida State just hasn't been able to get over these humps. They haven't been able to close games like they used to. And seeing them being able to fight like this is huge because it's just something that we haven't seen in the past four years. And it's wild to say that. So it's it's huge. And I don't think it's really any other way to say it. Sebastian, what do you got? Well, I just want to say one thing and one thing only. We've now seen three straight weeks of continuous improvement, something that we did not see in the previous administration. So, Gary, I ask you, are you now ready to never say the name Willie Taggart in this building ever again? No, because you can't forget the pa- you can't forget history in this sense. You can't. Rem- you got to remember still where you came from because there's still it's growth, and you have to always be able to look back and say we were there now, we were there and now we're here. And I know it's still not that much more in saying we were there and now we're here, but it's still some growth, whether it might not be a huge jump from year to year. I'm, so I'm thrilled st- to see it, and I, I can you- attest to what Matt was saying. Uh, um, Matt was saying over the phone and and. Um, Today or that game was the first time I at a Florida State game that I have been in attendance in where even all the way up in the press box where Austin and I were covering the game working the game from, I felt under my feet, like in my feet, I felt the stands at Doak Campbell Stadium rumble and shake because of all the noise that the fans were making. And this was a handicapped crowd. This crowd was only um, what was it like 1816 like, in yeah. attendance. Uh, 18,016 in attendance. Yep, um, that is a tiny crowd by by Florida State standards, and still they made that building shake in, in that first half. Uh, unbelievable! It, I am elated to see it, and um, I, I obviously, you know, it, I hope it continues. Um, that that first half though felt like finally a, a, a tangible breakthrough for the first time in since we've gotten here yeah and i mean just listening to the to the players and coaches and post-game interviews there was a pretty clear consensus that that goal line stand late against notre dame uh maybe it wasn't goal line but but the fourth down stop against Mm -hmm. notre dame late in that game everybody said that was a turning point for mentality uh for just fighting every chance that you get because at that point uh, going back to the notre dame game there was a very low chance that fsu was going to win that game so norvell came out and said i mean he was really excited that his guys played up to the situation uh, did not just give up because the result was never really in doubt. Uh, they they actually stayed out and fought. And everybody said that carried over into this game against UNC. And especially in the first half with the production that the defensive line got, uh, the huge pick six return from Kendo. I mean, you, you could tell the energy was still there. So I, it, there's a chance that this can, could continue for the rest of the season. The defensive line especially needs that little boost because of how poorly they started off. But this is a great reversal of fortune. Exactly. And in, from that Notre Dame game, he also uh, Norvell also said there are no moral victories. And a team that would have accepted that Notre Dame game as a moral victory would have hung their hat on that and wouldn't have came back to get it the next week. And Florida State, they came back, they picked up that uh, moral victory, and they said, we're carrying this through. And that was, that was huge. But let's be honest here. This game wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There was still a lot of flaws. And I want to ask you guys, Max, we can start with you. Uh, what concerns do you still have about this team going forward? Because it could be the offense, it could be certain spots on the defense, but there still are flaws right now in this team. I would say the biggest flaw that I saw, and I'm not the most experienced Florida State fan, I won't lie, but I will say any football team can just come out and start slow. And if you look at the end game like totals and statistics for North Carolina, they played well. 
they just had three pretty rough first drives and then a really, really unfortunate interception, which was a great play on our on Florida State's defense and a really bad read by Sam Howell. But outside of that, you could argue this this offense came back and made a great game out of something that should have been a blowout. I'm very worried about Florida State's defense still. Yeah, I mean, they put up 558 yards, UNC did. That's 120-ish more than FSU. So, I mean, it's exactly like you said, considering that these teams were pretty much trading punts early in the game after the uh, the short touchdown drive FSU had. Uh, that's some great rebounding potential for the, the Tar Heels that is expected of a number five team, but still speaks to how worried we should be about this FSU defense. Another part that concerns me, really, it also relates to defense as well, because we did see this a lot, were those unsportsmanlike conducts, those penalties. I mean, another game where you're having double-digit penalties, 12 penalties for 89 yards in this one, and a lot of them were undisciplined ones. I remember I was talking with Austin about it before the show. I believe it was Corey Durden. I saw it on a grainy video on Twitter this weekend because I was at the game sitting on the opposite end of the field. And... I, the player, Florida State player is pretty much just punching the North Carolina guy while he's on the ground. And stuff like that you just cannot have. And I know like sometimes you get caught up in the moment as a player and it just your instincts kind of just take over. But those are kind of moments where you have to have that calmness and understanding to keep moving forward and not hurt your team. Sebastian? Well, I, I think the the... I'm usually the person who's most, uh, I guess you could say, hawkish on penalties on this show. I'm usually the first guy to say, well, I mean, things were okay, but I really want to see um, the penalty situation improve. Um, honestly, with this game, I think you can point to it. Um, it it's, it's less about a lack of discipline. Well, it goes hand in hand, really. But uh, for me, it was less about like discipline and more about temper. You know, um, that de- the, the penalties against, or the flags against uh, the defensive line, be it unsportsmanlike conducts or, or uh, pass interferences, felt more like like a, a loss of patience or, or temperament from being out in that field for so long, especially leading into that second half um, where we really got to see that. Uh, you know, there was that one offense, even though, you know, the offense is, um, there was that one drive where, you know, the it felt like the offense had to score three touchdowns in order to get one to count, to finally go through. Um, but um, it, I think, you know, it, it, that'll come with time. Once you're, once, um, you know, we've we finally rounded this corner, uh, Florida State can go, hey, like, we, we know what we're capable of. We've got to, like, you know, main, keep, keep the pressure on but not lose our heads. If we lose our heads, we're going to lose the game. And that's what, and that's what showed, you know. It, it felt like um, uh, UNC scored on those drives more, more than anything, uh, which was – gave them the momentum to really push it to 28 points within three points of the uh, of the Florida State lead uh, so late in the game but I, I think I think that'll come with time I'm, I'm very I'm, I'm consciously optimistic on that I think that'll improve as um, the guys on the squad kind of realize hey we can we can do this we don't we don't need to make these boneheaded errors yeah that's what you hope to see from a coaching staff perspective you just hope that they can start to see from what your perspective is and if you're a coach saying hey we gotta just relax and hopefully they take note of it but I want to talk about uh, the former FSU commit Sam Howell I mean I know we mentioned him before but the kid had one heck of a game 374 yards three touchdowns that one pick turned out to be a very costly error in this game and real momentum swing right there but he was 20 for 36 I mean he looked really really good in this one 
And obviously, he really he got also really unlucky in a lot of these game in this game. He had a few drops by his receivers that just led to some un some poor plays there. And I know the big one is obviously the last play, just dropped it. It was right in his hands both the time. It was not Sam Howell's fault. I think there's at least two or three of these where it was a good pass square to the chest, and the receiver just drops it. So. Austin, I want to get your take on what you saw to Sam Howell, and does Florida, should Florida State really regret not being able to get this kid? At this point, no, because, I mean, just seeing what the offense, or how well they've transitioned to running the offense through Jordan Travis uh, makes me optimistic for when he can get some more uh, experience under his belt. So not, I don't really think the missing out on Sam Howell storyline is one that should stick for FSU. But regarding Howell's performance, I mean, it... it he he did have a good scoreline. I would say like those the last drive in particular with the the drops from receivers, those were where he he kind of got uh, the the short end of the stick. I would say, but there were also a couple deep passes into tight coverage where the receivers honestly bailed him out. So I I was gonna say it's a mixed bag. That's why I kind of hesitated there, but that's not really giving enough credit to him. He had a great game. Uh, the one pick six that was just a really good read by Kendo. Uh, Kendo was going to pressure the quarterback, but he dropped into coverage against the running back and picked off the pass like that's how he laid it out in the postgame conference so just great heads up play by Kando there I don't really pin that too much on Howell but I mean there there were some plays where his receivers just made ungodly catches that had the entire press box just losing their minds but he he did play well I'll give him that Max what did you see out of uh, Howell in this game I agree it's a bit of a mixed bag in that he had some really impressive drives where he would just drive the team down, and it was—it just looked like an unfair match. It looked like the Hariels were destroying us the whole game. But I personally am, as a Packer fan, you see the bubble screen thrown all the time. It's basically the Packers' run game. And with the bubble screen, which essentially is what Hal was trying to throw on that interception, you can't – I had a, I was at the game, so I had a sideline view, so I don't have the best interpretation – from what I saw, it was a phenomenal play. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to downplay the FSU defensive play there. It was just – it was a hard pass to be making at that time. You're still close to your own end zone. It was rushed, and it just – it was right in the hands of the defenders who made a great read, great instincts. But I just – Howell deserves credit. He could have put up over 400 yards with tying the game easily. And his receivers let him down. But in general, I think Travis played better. I think Travis really, really, really carried our offense and is the reason we won. Well, maybe minus the pick six. The numbers might be going in your favor on that one, actually, because the QBR for Jordan Travis was actually better than Sam Howell. Sam Howell was sitting around a, 60, a 36, and Travis was around 68. So the QBRs do go with what you're saying there. And I, you can agree with that. But I also think what really has to be mentioned here for Florida State at least, is, or for both teams, is the O-line play. Because Florida State's defense was able to get to Sam Howell and sack Sam Howell. They had four sacks, eight tackles for losses, and they were and they had four QB hurries too in that game. So when you're able to put that sort of pressure on a, a sophomore quarterback, a young guy like this, in a night game, and I know it's not the usual 79,560 people that are in Doak Campbell, but the 18,000 people made it feel pretty tight in there. So... Being able to continually put pressure on him and not give him a lot of time to do what he does best makes a huge difference. And that's the reason I think that's one of the main reasons why North Carolina wasn't able to come out on top. 
But Austin, how big was Florida State's O-line play? Because, I mean, they only allowed one sack in this game. It was huge. I mentioned this. I, I believe I mentioned it on the show last week. I definitely mentioned it on Talk and Shop with Logan Grutschfeld of the FSVU last week. But the offensive line play was going to be key for whatever FSU wanted to do. Because especially with Tamari Ontario out, the team's biggest deep threat, the offensive line needed to give Jordan Travis enough time to get through his first, second, maybe third reads uh, since he didn't have that, that comfort blanket of Tamari Ontario to rely on. And he did that with great, with great effect. Uh, Ontario Wilson, Keyshawn Helton, the other receivers definitely stepped up in Terry's absence. And then in the run game, it, it wasn't quite as impressive a showing as it was against uh, Jacksonville State. But I mean, you're playing against the number five team in the country. I wouldn't expect similar numbers there. But LaDamian Webb and Jordan Travis both went over 100 yards rushing. That's the first time in a long time, or maybe ever. I, I forget the exact uh, uh, time frame on that stat. But uh, it's the, one of the first instances of FSU having 200-yard rushers that I can remember. So great stuff from them. And for a unit that has been really the bane of FSU's existence these past few years, it's a huge step up. Yeah, and they had a, they had a few miscues coming down the stretch. They had a few false starts in bad spots where they shouldn't have them. And otherwise, they looked really, really solid, and I was really proud of that. But you mentioned the loss of Tamari Terry in this game, and you could tell it, it hurt because yeah. he had nine catches in against Notre Dame. There were only eight catches between all Florida State receivers this week, two by Ontario, two by Keyshawn, and then one by Preston Daniel, one by Warren Thompson, one which was a touchdown from uh, Cam McDonald, and then one by Jay Sean Corbett. So you really, it really kills this team to not have that kind of deep threat or that kind of target like they do without Terry and Max. I want to hear your opinion on this. What did you think of the loss in terms of the passing game for Florida State that not having Terry made, gave this team? Well, I think the biggest, big, a really big part where I wouldn't say it went unnoticed. It definitely didn't. But where it got hidden pretty well was, one, Helton had almost three ridiculous catches, all for really big key plays. The third one was ruled out of bounds, but still momentum brings up the energy of the whole team. But then the big thing for me was once you get in that second half, you're up 33 or 31 to 7, you're obviously just going to run the ball. And they ran it very well. So with Terry not out there, it made sense to keep running it, even though everyone knew it was going to be a run play and it didn't really work out in the second half. First half looked great, though. I would have kept running it too. It just didn't really pan out as well as the first half did. I think even when you're in that situation where you need to be running the ball like Florida State was in when they were up 31-7, to you still need to have that safety blanket that is tomorrow and Terry in the pass game if you get into a third and long situation Completely in a time agree. like that. So it, I think this will continue to hurt them for as long as he's out. And I know in the press conference today, Mike Norvell was mentioning that we could be seeing him back here pretty soon. And he was on crutches this past weekend with the, after his knee surgery. But if they can get him back sooner rather than later... It's going to be huge because Florida State has a tough, a tough schedule coming towards the back half of the year because they're going to be taking on current number 23 North Carolina State November 14th and then number one Clemson back-to-back weeks. So if he can be back by then, I think that's really the target date they should be circling. Give him another couple more weeks because I think this was a two- to four-week uh, recovery time for this surgery. It was a very minor knee surgery, but a knee surgery nonetheless. That's something that's very dangerous and very... Uh, impactful to any kind of player's career so if they can get him back by Clemson that's really going to be huge for him especially if he can make 
something happened in that one because that's a national that's going to be a nationally televised game because it's Florida State Clemson because it's just Clemson really, <laughs> but uh, it's going to be one that he's going to need to circle for especially his scouting and possibly making an impact in the NFL draft. So let's talk about Florida State's next opponent though because the, they'll be heading up to Louisville, Kentucky to take on the Louisville Cardinal who has had a rough, rough stretch as of lately. They opened up their first uh, game of the year with a win, but then they have since lost four straight, and all four to ACC opponents. Their first win was against Western Kentucky, a game that they should be winning. But then they lost to number 17, Miami, 47-34. They lost to number 21, Pitt, 23-20. And that game was that game that I really do think they should have won, but Malik Cunningham did come out with an injury of really... I thought it was really bad, but he's thank God he's been able to be playing recently. But uh, he came out of that game with an injury, so they lost that one 23-20, and then they lost pretty handily to Georgia Tech 46-27. And then they had a weird game, a really weird game. I didn't, I'll admit I didn't watch this one against Notre Dame, but just looking at the stat line, looking at the recaps of it, it's a weird one considering the score was 12-7 in Notre Dame's favor. But... Scott Satterfield, he's done a great job with this team over the past or last year, really. Eight and five, they won a bowl. They won their bowl game, the Music City Bowl against uh, Mississippi State, and then this year they're coming out just flat, and they really haven't lost all that much in terms of their offense. They still have Tutu Atwell. They still have Malik Cunningham, which are huge keys to this team. But what are your what are your opinion right now on the Cardinals from what you've seen? It's it's really hard to get a read on them because, I mean, it, it's largely in part to that Notre Dame game. I mean, after giving up 47 to Miami and 46 to, to Georgia Tech, rather, I kind of expected them expected Notre Dame to beat the brakes off this Cardinals team. But only putting up 12 points, I mean, that was good enough to come away with the win. But like you said, it's just so weird. Looking at the stat lines, I did not watch that game either. I was a little too focused on FSU that day. But, I mean their season is just so hard to get a read on. I, I mean, you, like you said, you do still have Tutu Atwell, who I remember giving FSU fits even in a losing effort last year. So that's going to be a guy to keep an eye on, especially with, I mean, Asante Samuel and and friends in the secondary. It's There's really nobody else outside of him that's uh, had a great season so far for FSU. I, I would imagine that's going to be the CB1 versus WR1 matchup. So going to be fun to watch that. Um, and at, and at least for uh, Asante Samuel's sake, it is it, he is a slot receiver and yeah. he does well in the slot defending right. there. So that is huge for him. But still, they also have Des Fitzpatrick, yes. who's a solid wide receiver. He had the most yards in Florida State's last game against the Cardinals last season. But Notre Dame for that game there, they were close to twenty three point favorites mm-hmm. at home against Louisville. Rightfully so, As they been, you yeah. would have expected them to cover that. And when you give up seven points, that's great. But Somehow Notre Dame just could not score, and Louisville was just coming up with stops left and right. And I don't know if that says more about Notre Dame being pretenders or Louisville's defense maybe being good because it's weird. I don't know. It's weird. Because uh, uh, I, I, I know because we see. I know it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of those games where you just don't know what to think. And Max, I don't know. Do you have any idea on what's going on with the Louisville Cardinals right now? I will say a couple things. One, I am just one of the biggest haters of Notre Dame ever I truly don't think they're good and I think the past two weeks for Notre Dame show that like Florida State should not really have contended as much as they did against Notre Dame and they played a great game I thought and same thing with Louisville it looks like like you guys are saying looks like a really weird game but to keep it within five at Notre Dame that's just ridiculous and then for Louisville's sake 
their offense looks pretty impressive. The thing that I think will separate Florida State and Louisville and hopefully have Florida State come out on top is, once again, the D-line. Like, our corners are going to have to stop their strong wide receiver core, but if we can rush the passer, it'll take so much pressure off the Florida State secondary and can make this game manageable. And I think that's just all Florida State needs to think about is managing the game and keeping it within regard or like within reach. And I think it'll be doable. I really do see Florida State coming out on top with this game. Well, so here's the thing about the D-line and the O-line matchup when you're talking Louisville O-line against Florida State D-line. Louisville gave up no sacks yeah. to Notre Dame. They, they, Notre Dame didn't even get a quarterback hurry on Malik Cunningham, which is surprising. And you see Louisville get four sacks and no QB hurries and six tackles for loss. I know Notre Dame had eight tackles for loss, but still, when Notre Dame does not have a sack against a team that scores seven points, you're just scratching your head, but obviously it's because Malik Cunningham is a solid running quarterback. He can get the job done with his feet as well. So that's going to be another big thing. It's going to be a different story for Florida State this time around when a quarterback matchup because Sam Howell sits a bit more in the pocket, can take it on his feet with a little bit, but Malik Malik Cunningham is more like Jordan Travis. So hopefully for Florida State's sake, them practicing against Jordan Travis all the time where he's able to run the ball and pass the ball pretty decently, they can understand how to defend that a little bit better because that's something Florida State has obviously had so much trouble in in the past. Yeah, that's one of the storylines that I mentioned heading into Miami, and we know how that matchup went against uh, Derek King, a a very accomplished uh, dual-threat quarterback. So I would think it's not going to be a repeat of that performance, but just considering the quality of Louisville's team right now, but... It definitely should be a plus for FSU being able to practice against him every day. Exactly. And let's get some predictions because we're right up against the 30-minute mark of the hour here. So, Austin, we'll start with you. Predictions for this game. I do not think that FSU is going to uh, to lose this game. I think they're going to win at 31, or no, 33-29. Bit of a weird score prediction for L- or for Louisville, but I think it'll come down to a, a missed two-point uh, two conversion to try and get themselves back into the game. All right. Well, let me remind you guys, though, FSU is the underdog. They opened up at six and a half point dogs mm-hmm. for this game somehow, somewhere. I, it confuses me. It's Max, me. do you got a prediction for this one? I'm not really sure, but I think I'll just throw out a random number. I'll go. Uh, I'll go 21. I don't think we're going to make field goal after this debacle of the weekend, kicking wise. Um, I think we'll go 21 to 17. Nice, close game, low scoring for college football standards. Oh, gosh. I'm way off on my score prediction. Uh, Sebastian, you got something quick? If Louisville's O line is as good as you're saying it is, this is going to boil down to a war of attrition. Uh, 21 24, Louisville. See, I'm, I'm thinking, boys, the defense doesn't show up on both ends for both of these teams. Mm hmm. 39-35, Florida State takes this one. Okay. So I think that's all we got for this first half. Max, thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate your insight on Florida State and this past week's game. Can I say one thing before I leave? Go for it. Go Rays, Raisin 6. Have a good one. All right, Raisin 6, there you go. That's the prediction from Max Rundy from WVFS. But that's all we got for this first half. We'll be talking uh college football national landscape mlb playoffs nfl in the second half stay tuned for that you are listening to tomahawk talk on wvfs tallahassee the voice of florida state and we'll see how i feel and what i want to say
Welcome back to Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. We're now joined by Jacob Varga. How are you doing, man? I'm doing extremely well tonight. Good to hear. Good to hear. We now, well, I, I'm, you're probably going to be doing a lot better after I mention this, but we got more football coming in this weekend. Yes, we got sir. more, two more conferences are joining the fray. We got the Big Ten and the Mountain West Thank goodness for the Mountain West coming back because that means we get Hawaii at midnight again in a couple weeks. I already checked up yeah. on Hawaii's schedule. we got to wait two weeks. They're playing two road games for the first two weeks of their schedule. Then they're heading back to the Big Island for their uh, home opener. So that is going to be huge. I'm really excited for midnight football again. But we got a whole load of college football coming your way. We haven't really been able to talk about the national landscape because we've just had so many, so many sports going on. We just finished up with the NBA last week. We finished up with the NHL playoffs a few weeks ago. MLB's starting to come to a close. It'll be over by next. It'll be over really by pop, next show, yeah. Really, maybe by next show. I think there's a chance it runs into like Monday or Tuesday, but MLB's coming to a close. The NFL, we got. We're only in week six, so we got a long way to go, and possibly even longer, depending on if COVID all that keeps extending this season somehow, some way. But we're finally able to talk about the national landscape, and I'm so excited about that. So I wanted to kick it off with talking a little bit about the AP Top 25. And we've had some interesting developments as the AP Top 25 has moved on. We are going to be waiting, I think, until the 14th of November for the first college football playoff ranking from ESPN. But we have the AP Top 25. That's the one we're all going by right now. Sometimes you have some people going by the USA Today coaches poll, but we prefer the AP here. So we got Clemson at number one, Notre Dame or Alabama at two, Notre Dame, Georgia, Ohio State, Oklahoma State, Texas A&M, Penn State, and Cincinnati, along with Georgia finishing out that top ten. I want to ask you guys, who is your one pretender and your one contender in this top ten right here? Austin, we'll start with you. Ah, well, contender, I would say Oklahoma State, just by by virtue of the uh, the Big Twelve kind of losing Texas and uh, and Oklahoma. So, I mean, if there's going to be a team that makes a college football playoff push from the Big 12, it's going to be Oklahoma State. And I think they're just going to be able to continue their early season momentum. But as far as pretenders, I am going to have to look at Notre Dame, just based on recent history, how they've played since they came back from that little COVID scare, being being off for three weeks. Um, obviously, the FSU game we talked about last week, uh, they did not score. They, they only scored a touchdown in the second half. And then that weird debacle against Louisville that we touched on, that's that's just strange so maybe they're going to be able to get back into sorts once they've been back in football mode for a few weeks but i mean they, they are just playing against the, the the dregs of the acc right now so i don't think that they're all that i agree and i know uh, max max pretty much alluded to that in the yeah. first half he was calling them pretenders early on even before we even asked the question mm-hmm. but jacob who are your contenders and pretenders yeah i think i mean contenders you don't have to look very far uh, it's very hard to bet against Alabama well, as a contender every single year. Oh, come year. on. The, the easy off. pick. <laughs> I'm sorry? The easy pick. <laughs> the easiest pick is the, is the safest pick. That's true. Last time I was on here, made a lot of risky picks, didn't pan out. Alabama, <laughs> Nick Saban, barely practiced with the team this week, and he still coached them to a brilliant second half. And for pretenders, I got to agree on the Notre Dame pick. 
looking very weak since their COVID scare. Barely beat up an FSU team that, you know, wasn't looking all that great. And I just don't have a lot of faith that they're going to go into the uh, ACC and beat the teams like the Clemsons and be able to go into the playoffs and beat the Alabamas and beat the Ohio States of the world. I just don't think they'll be able to do it. Yeah, that's it's going to be tough for them coming down their stretch because they got some tough ones coming up. But my pretender, Oklahoma State. Oklahoma oh, State okay. is my pretender okay. because the Big 12 is starting to cannibalize like it always does. It goes through this process every single season now, like just like the Pac-12. They continue to beat up on each other. Like we saw Texas-Oklahoma, that was a mess. And Oklahoma's just been a mess altogether all throughout the year. But odds are Oklahoma will beat Oklahoma State at Bedlam this year. It's a vicious and then, cycle of suck. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, Oklahoma State is my pretender. I know they still got uh, Chuba, but it still doesn't matter, in my opinion. Sebastian. So for me, like, um, I want to expand my fraudulent um, detection system to the entirety of twenty-five, and I just want to say. <laughs> Did you that, say the whole top twenty-five? Yeah. Okay. I thought my uh, headphones cut out for a second. Um, I'll be honest. Like anybody who hasn't played a game, like. I know. Okay, the only the only team that I'm ex- I'm confident that will not be exposed out of this top twenty five is Ohio State. It's the only one. It's the only one. Everybody else who has a current currently has a zero zero record. I think it's ridiculous that you're even being ranked. Um, I'm not. Are there worse teams that deserve to be on this list because they're these teams have yet to play a game? No, I'm not saying that. But I I, I think it's it for me. Uh, it, it's not it's not the hater in me that's saying that. It's not like, uh, no, oh, it, I don't like any of these teams. So, so no, It's just it. you being realistic because yeah, how can you – I mean, we do this at the beginning of the year with the preseason right. ranking. Everyone's ranked of, even though they haven't played a game, but it's fair because no one has played a game. So yeah. you have to have some sort of ranking. But we've had teams that are playing – they're up to five games or six games. And so you have guys that can be better. Like we have Coastal Carolina, who's five and zero. We have BYU. I mean, BYU has been good. If you guys yes. have you guys been watching BYU this year? Just highlights, really. I've but... been I've been watching way too much BYU <laughs> this year. I mean, they're playing really good football. Granted, not against the best competition, but they're still playing really good football. Yeah. Um, apart from that, like I can see Oregon dropping games. So, like it, it's too early. I can see Wisconsin dropping games because they always do. Um, I can. It's. It's too early to tell with these teams. It, it just is. I, I get it, but I, I don't like it. Yeah. I no, just don't. I agree. We'll see how it all plays out after this first weekend of Big Ten football because I believe Ohio State plays Nebraska, Michigan plays Minnesota, and you got a few other games in that slate. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think Wisconsin's actually on a Thursday or Friday night. I think they open up the Big Ten season, so that's going to be a lot of fun. But let's continue to talk about these these teams who are starting later, these conferences that are really starting a month and a half after the season begins, does this put them at an advantage or a disadvantage? Because they've had this extended break and they've still been able to practice for the most part. Once like I know the Pac-12 was halting a lot of practices until they figured out their rapid testing uh, protocol, and they have now, so they've been practicing. And is this going to be a disadvantage or an advantage for them being rested and only playing? They're only going to be playing seven games at the most, too. Have they had any form of shakedown practice? What do you mean shakedown practice? All right, just kind of, you know, um, just any form of, of, of practice leading into these first games where they're... Yeah, they're they, yeah, they've been, yeah, they've been practicing like normal. So, like, once they officially said the start date is November, was is October this weekend, October, like, 24th, 
the Big Ten started practicing, and they were already practicing over early before the summer started or before the school year started. If, so, if that's the case, then I, I don't think it'll really affect the quality of play between these teams because you know they're they're all dealing with the similar start. Um, what I think it does affect is like, um, so it, it's definitely going to be on the better side of when the NFL started their games, where they just boom hit the ground running, no no form of preseason, no form of kind of real anything where everybody looked terrible and um, anybody who was in a in a brand new system uh, just kind of looked lost in the first week i don't think we'll see that that level of calamity across um you know the pac-12 the big 10 and and the mac uh but um i i, I think you'll you'll see slower starts um or maybe faster starts compared cons- determined by whether or not defensive lines just disintegrate i agree this this will really tell you who is the haves and who's the have-nots of college football because you're going to see ohio state come out and blow the doors off nebraska in game one and it's going to be evident that they are a lot better than every other team in their conference but what do you guys think or austin and uh jacob on this one i think the, yeah so, the, yeah go, go ahead. ahead so i think uh, i think it's an overall incredible disadvantage for all these teams for one major reason they're not going to have the same amount of time to build up the college football playoff resume that these other teams are going to have. I can already see it. I see a couple SEC one-loss teams against a 7-0 Pac-12 team, and those SEC teams are going to have the argument, like Georgia. We lost to Alabama. That's it. But we didn't only play seven games against conference opponents. We played all 12 or all 11 or all 10, whatever it is. And we deserve to be there because we have more quality wins than you've even had the chance to have. So they're not going to be at a disadvantage against each other, of course, because they've all had this deficit of not having to practice or not getting to practice, rather. Uh, but I think it's going to overall affect them when they've, they're meeting teams in the playoffs that have been battle-tested. They've, they're going to meet teams in bowl games, New York Six Bowls, that are going to be – practice and experience throughout the entire season instead of just a half season yep and, and i guess in that scenario it would be oregon's fault for not going through the grind of an sec schedule but i mean even beyond that these schedules that the pac-12 and uh big 10 are instituting do not allow for rescheduling or bye weeks it's just going to be seven or eight games in seven or eight weeks so if we see a COVID outbreak like we saw with notre dame god forbid uh, say at, at one of these schools in one of these two conferences, then I have no idea how that's going to work out. If they're just going to play one less game, if that game's just going to get scrapped, because with this really tight schedule that they've really put themselves in, because they could have joined the the other three Tower 5 conferences and started play uh, at the beginning of the season, September 12th, but they wanted to take it slower, which I get it. Football is not really as important to these two conferences as it is to the ACC, the SEC, and the Pac- the Big 12. But, I mean, they've really pushed themselves into a corner, backed themselves into a corner. So I hope that that's, that issue does not come up because that's going to be even bigger than uh, an even bigger issue to me than these potential college football playoff discussions at the end of the season. If I give you a 5-0 and Ohio State. 5-0. and and Let's say they have a couple games that they're not able to play. Maybe some of them are their fault, some of them aren't. Right. But they are up against, so they're fighting for the fourth spot in the playoff, and it's them, 5-0 and Ohio State, or a two-loss Georgia football team. Are you taking, because that means Jeez. Georgia has lost to Alabama twice. Yep. Let's say they've lost, they lost this past weekend and they lose in the SEC title game. Who does this committee take? The two-loss Georgia team. Well, I, I, I would they, No, I think they take Ohio State. Really? 
after only five games. See, that's the, see, uh, this is what we're going to have. We are, I'm prepping us for this conversation that we will be having in a few I months. Think, <laughs> I think it depends. In those five games, how do they look? Are they barely scrapping by against Nebraska on Saturday? Or... Are they look like you. They look like Ohio. They look like an Ohio there's State a lot team. Of there. Nobody's gonna like Ohio State will not scrape past Nebraska. Nebraska is, saying, a, is a. We've seen crazier things happen. Not not with Nebraska involved. <laughs> hey, who knows? It's, a, it's an example. <laughs> it's 2020, man. Anything can happen. <laughs> exactly. Anything can happen in 2020. If they're five and zero with five beatdowns on five conference teams, I think they get in over a team that obviously and clearly can't beat the number one team in the country that they'd have to play. Yeah. Okay, yeah. See, that's see, that. that's, see that's, that's that's a really good angle. That's really good logic. That's the kind of logic I'm looking for out here cuz this we're going to have these stupid arguments <laughs> like this. I guarantee you we will be seeing the ESPN talking heads going at this for weeks on end. And I know we will too because that's what's good to talk about and that's what drives up ratings. So, we're going to do that too, but it's it's going to be a lot and it's just going to be maybe mind-numbingly stupid at some points too. <laughs> so, we hope you stick along for that those great college football conversations we have throughout the season. But we got to talk about the MLB because that it's oh yes we do Austin you can't run from this one. I had to talk about my Marlins. You got to talk about your Braves now. <laughs> That's fair, so I guess. the now the tables have turned. The Braves in Atlanta fashion, Atlanta sports fashion. Who would have thunk it? They Just blew a lead. It, first two they had two two or they had two two game leads throughout this series. Two nothing, then three to one both technically blown so what were your thoughts on this team and where does it where do they go from here the one view that i have seen just regurgitated on twitter the past few hours uh, since the game ended has been that this team was not supposed to be in this situation after losing mike soroka early in the season by far the best pitcher on the best starting pitcher on the team uh, and having to kind of piece together a rotation with a lot of rookies a lot of inexperienced guys it was a miracle this team had as great a pitching performance as they did in the playoffs and got to the NLCS. So a lot of people are saying, oh, they'll be back. They have a lot of youth to, to build from. And if they can if they can re-sign Marcelo Zuna, that is at the top of my wish list for the Braves to do this offseason because he was a huge producer on offense, uh, people, are, people are saying that, oh, the, the Braves have a nice future. But my issue with that is that Atlanta sports fans have gotten so complacent with that exact mindset because – when the Hawks got swept in the Eastern Conference Finals after by LeBron James after winning 60 games, people were like, the Hawks may not have a dominant player on this team, but they're going to be back in contention. They're in the lottery now, five years later. Same story with the Falcons. Obviously, after Super Bowl 51, people were like, you were one play away from winning that Super Bowl. You're going to be an NFC contender for years to come. We just fired Dan Quinn. But you still got the MVP. Matt Ryan won an MVP. He did win an MVP. Ten first-round picks on offense. What can go wrong? But it was in that same season, and it's been downhill ever since then. So, like, just the complacency is is awful for me, and people people should be mad about the result of this series because it doesn't matter if you're not supposed to be there. It matters that you were there. You had a 3-1 lead on the best team in the National League, potentially the best team in MLB. You should have been able to close that out, and you didn't. Well, taking a look at, at both of those examples that you're using, the the Hawks and the Falcons, was it more like a burn everything for this season type thing, or a oh, um, which is the situation that I see in in Atlanta with the Braves? I guess not really in Atlanta anymore, but um, <laughs> where it's like okay, there, there's still the foundation is there, and the foundation developed to a point where it could reach uh, the pennant maybe a year or two earlier than most people expected. 
I mean, with with the Hawks, that's a valid ex- example because they did end up shipping off a lot of their marquee players within a year or two. But I mean, the Falcons, they had a, a lot of the big contributors on that team were first or second year guys like Grady Jarrett, Deion Jones on defense. Um, so that team was expected to be a contender. And I mean, they were one interception off the knee of Keanu Neal from going to the NFC Championship game in 2018. So, I mean, that was just an unfortunate stroke of luck there. But, I mean, you you've, you obviously know how this team has played since then. It's saying the Braves shouldn't have been here or in this spot, I think is just dead wrong. Because yeah. this this team is good. This team is still a good team. And you're that's it's honestly loser talk saying that, oh, we shouldn't have been here. You're exactly. just trying to make excuses for this team. When yeah. this team is good, I mean, you're the they're the number two team in the NL. Yeah. So just saying that the number two team shouldn't be contending for the NLCS, mm-hmm. it's just out of my mind, yeah. like numbingly stupid. It's you can't justify yeah. that because this team is solid. And yes, you can say, oh, they didn't have Soroka, they didn't have whatever, they didn't have Donaldson from last year. Mm-hmm. They plugged holes and guys played and stepped up. Ian Anderson looked great yeah. before up pretty much until then. Kyle Wright had a bad game. You can chalk it up to that. Because he's a rookie. That's his first time being in that situation. But the rest of this team had, I mean, they had veterans. Mark Melanson, he's yep. in the pen. He, Incredible closer. Yeah, and you have solid players all around this team. But it's, I don't get it about Atlanta. What yeah. is it? Like the dogs do it. The Georgia Bulldogs do it. The Atlanta Falcons do it. The Hawks. I mean, you, you've, seen, you've, seen, you've seen all the screenshots of scoreboards with Atlanta teams having a lead, and then we all know what happens next. Exactly. It's tiring. I yes. mean, in my opinion, it's just the Atlanta curse. This is the classic season where they go far, they put up the lead, and deep in the playoffs, they're there. They're about to do it, and then they don't. Then they fall apart. We saw it with the Hawks. We saw it with the Falcons, and I guarantee you we're going to see it with the Braves. See, like they're curse. young, Go ahead. Go ahead. but Sorry. it doesn't matter. Yeah. I feel like they're going to keep either underachieving or being right there a hand away from it and just not being able to finally grasp the title. I want one last question. It's just Atlanta sports. I want one last question on this Braves talk because we got to keep moving to the another great series that was the Tampa Bay Rays. But, Austin, is there a window? And if so, how big or small is it for this Braves team? For me, it depends entirely on re-signing Marcelo Zuna just because he led the National League in home runs. He was a great addition for this team with, with the addition of the DH in the National League. And, I mean, I guess that would uh, would influence the, the outlook for this team also if the National League keeps the DH for years to come or if it is just for next year. But, I mean, the starting pitching is there if Soroka doesn't tear his Achilles uh, and the rest of the guys stay healthy. So, like, the the window should still be open. There's a lot of great talents on this team. I, I just I, – I, I've been burned one too many times. My one tip, though, don't sign Marcel to a big deal. He cannot keep it up over 162 games. Okay. That's just from watching him for the past whatever amount of years that I have been. But let's talk about the Rays now because – the Rays, just like the Braves, almost blew this one, except almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Mm-hmm. And the, luckily for the Rays, they ain't playing both of those games. So uh, the Rays actually almost lost. They went down all the way to Game 7. The uh, Houston Astros won three straight in spectacular fashion with Carlos Correa uh, walk-off home run. They almost made my prediction from day one of the regular season correct, <laughs> but sadly, for my sake, they didn't do that. Also, happily, too, because I, I, the Astros, I don't like them, but I just want to be right. But they were able to get the job done. I want to ask the uh, Rays people here, I mean, how does it feel? What was your take from this series, and how nervous were you every single game after getting up 3 nothing? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by saying um, at midnight, I'm almost at exactly the stroke of midnight, I was walking away from Dope Campbell Stadium. 
uh, alongside my colleague, my colleague uh, Nick Carlisle. We were uh, talking about the game, but I was frantically just keeping up with the game on Twitter by the end of that, uh, by the end of the football game. And uh, you know, I saw Mark Tompkin, uh, writer for the Tampa Bay Times, tweet, uh, "The Rays uh, have won the American League pennant," or whatever he said. And I was elated. I was overjoyed, naturally. You know, um, it took another global recession for the Tampa Bay Rays to make another, um, another uh, World Series. But as soon as I was kind of done with that, it was like, okay, who are we going to see tomorrow night? And uh, after, you know, uh, the Dodgers win the National League pennant, I actually was a little concerned. Um, I'm not a pessimist by any means. Um, I am a, I'm an incredibly superstitious um, fan when it comes to sports, not just baseball, but baseball just elevates everything when it comes to superstition. Um, but I... I, I think that Brett Rutherford, um, a former V89er, would, um, would you know, disagree with me. But I, I am not very comfortable with the rate, with how the Rays looked coming out of this Houston series. Not because they lost three games straight. The, um, at the end of the day... They kind of limped out of the it. En- at the end of the day, yes. But um, at the end of the day, they won that pennant. Okay? You cannot hold a, um, hold a team... Uh, accountable or say, oh, well, they only won the pennant. You can't say that. And it's not like they're a team that got lucky throughout the playoffs. Absolutely. I mean, they're a good team. They, and... were, they were an incredible, they were a fantastic team uh, through 60 games. And then through each of their successive series, they were better than their opponents. Um, this season, this series that's coming up, the World Series, I'm, I'm not as comfortable simply because they're, they're key components of that Rays machine that aren't uh, performing up to par or to the standard that we we not so much held them to, but to that they played in that regular season. Brandon Lowe is a Lowe is is the biggest piece for me. He has not hit well at all in the playoffs. Rand, well, Randy Rosarena can only take you so far. But Jacob, what did you see out of this Rays team in this series against the Astros, and what are your feelings going forward for this team? What I saw was, I think any team that can overcome the obvious nerves and pressure of a Game 7 after being up 3-0 and then being tied 3-3, overcoming a Game 7 like that is going to build a lot of confidence. It's going to stave off a lot of doubts and worries that, you know, we could be a team, only the second team in MLB history, correct me if I'm wrong, that's blown a 3-0 lead. And to not blow that lead is absolutely huge for them. But just like you guys said before, I would be incredibly concerned about the Dodgers. The Dodgers just won three straight. They look red hot, kind of unstoppable. And we didn't really see much that out of them for the first four games of that series. But for the last three, they looked like the team that everyone was favoring. I agree. And I, I still like this Dodgers team in this series. They've been pretty much one of my, my obviously my top two pick coming all the way through this season because I mean how can you beat a team that has Mookie Betts, Cody Bellinger, Clayton Kershaw I mean they got they don't they don't have guys that miss I mean Corey Seager too I mean he won the MVP for the NLCS you I mean it's tough to get around this lineup you can't pitch away from any of these guys you can't intentionally walk one because the next guy will make you pay so it's going to be a really tough series and Austin I wanted to get your take on what are your thoughts on this series as a whole and who has the edge in this 1-1, 1v1 matchup? Admittedly, I have not been following the Rays too closely this postseason just because I've been so tuned into what the Braves are doing. But be- because that is true, I have a pretty good re- good read on the Dodgers, whereas some AL fans might not. 
So, I mean, I have seen this wrecking ball just plow through my Atlanta Braves uh, starting pitching time after time. And even when they're on defense, I mean, Mookie Betts has made some unbelievable catches at the track uh, to rob Freddie Freeman and others of home runs in the past few games. So, I mean, he's a menace wherever he is on the field. Um, I, I find it really hard to bet against this Dodgers team. I would probably take them in six over the Rays. I think it's a competitive series because the Rays have, like, like Sebastian said, they've gotten better every series they've played. But, I mean, this, this is just incredibly hard to bet against. I agree. It's, I, I don't know if it's incredibly hard to bet against, but it is a tough one because their pitching matchups are really going to make the difference in this game because if someone makes an error on the mound, it's going to big, cost them yeah. big time because Randy Rosarena, I mean, even, uh, what's his name? Shoot, why can't I draw a blank on him right now from the Rays? He had a couple big home runs in a couple big games Matt this Zanino. playoffs. Uh, but, Matt well, Zanino? No, not Zanino. Um, Kiermaier? No, I cannot shoot. But either way, but still, I think the pitching is really going to come down to it, and especially for this game one. It's Tyler Glass now against Clayton Kershaw. Clayton in his last game against the Braves, he did not look good. He looked like playoff Clayton Kershaw, in fact. So it's going to be huge. His ERA goes up a full run. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but his ERA goes up a full run every stage of the playoffs. So uh, I'm I'm forgetting the, the exact numbers, and I don't have them up right next to me, but it's like... Four in the in the in the divisional, and then like five in the LCS, and then it goes up like for late inning games, it goes up to like six or seven. So he gave up no runs against Milwaukee in, on October first. He gave up three to the dot or to the Padres on October seventh, and then he gave up uh, four to the Braves on the fifteenth. So he does progressively get worse as he gets closer to that <laughs> World Series because the doom is looming ever so closer now. Yep. So. I mean, does Clayton? Okay, let's here. Let's just ask the question that everyone's thinking: Will Clayton Kershaw choke tomorrow? I don't think so. I'm not gonna bless or curse the man, so I'll abstain. But I, I, I want to see him beat his demons, uh, or just kind of close out the fight against his demons. Because wh- what is going on, man? You're one of the best pitchers of the past twenty years, and and you vanish. So like James Harden. Simple answer. He doesn't have the clutch gene. Mm-hmm. That's the only. That's the only ex, like explanation for him in this scenario. I mean, Jacob, do, does Clayton Kershaw choke it tomorrow? Uh, yeah. Uh, in my opinion, Clayton Kershaw. Obviously, some people are built for the playoffs, and some people aren't. I don't think Kershaw is built for the playoffs. However, I do think they will win the game tomorrow in Game One, and I don't think it'll be because of Kershaw. I think it's because those bats are going to absolutely destroy Tampa Bay tomorrow. There's hitting light out lights out right now. I just I there's no way I could bet against the Dodgers tomorrow. Some quick perspective on Clayton Kershaw. He's one and two in the World Series with a five four ERA over twenty six and two thirds innings. So that's your kind of uh stat of the day there for Clayton Kershaw. But let's get to quick predictions for this series. Who wins, how many games, and who's the MVP? Austin? I've already put my uh, game series prediction out there. I would say Dodgers in six, and the MVP, I would just say Mookie Betts because, I mean, he he was phenomenal against the Atlanta Braves. He's been phenomenal really ever since he joined the Dodgers, ever since he was on the Red Sox, and I think he shines on the brightest stage. Sebastian, you got anything? Or I'm going to abstain. You abstain just of, like you have course, been yeah. from the whole AL thing? That's fair. Jacob, what do you got? Yeah, I'm going to go Dodgers in five, okay. also Ooh, having five. Mookie as my MVP. I think people are uh, thinking it's going to be a lot closer than it is. Yeah, I, I'm all... I, I can see the case for that. Where you know, um, it's the same storyline that we saw in 2008. A uh, 
an NL team with a very long playoff or World Series drought comes up against a you know a Tampa Bay Rays team. I said last week that they were better than the 2008 team, but I just don't know, man. I just don't know. I feel like we're going to get the old takes exposed coming oh, yeah, up on yeah. us. It will be and not it won't actually be the real old takes exposed. It'll be Brett Rutherford, Luke Hazen, and Tyler Phillips screenshotting whatever tweet <laughs> gets put out there with the predictions for this series. But I'm taking the Dodgers in seven, and I would love to see. I know they don't do it often, but I would love to see Clayton Kershaw get the MVP. But that probably won't happen. So I'm going to go with Cody Bellinger. Just so we don't have the Mookie sweep this mm. uh, for the MVP. But I. I really do. Have, like The Rays have so much fight in them. I like this team. They're a fun team to watch. And it's the tale of two cities. It's an uh, exuberant amount of money being spent on players compared to $26 million being spent on the Tampa Bay Rays. I think Clayton Kershaw and Mookie Betts, their salary is almost equivalent to the whole Tampa Bay Rays, which is just... dollars short, and you can pay for the entire you, you Rays were roster. You were listening to ESPN Radio earlier today, weren't you? I didn't actually see... I didn't. I wasn't listening to that. I was just watching... Uh, I was just on Instagram or Twitter, and I saw a stat be thrown up about that. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that was... It's going to be a crazy series. I'm excited for it. I love the World Series, no matter who's in it, except for when the Yankees are in it, but we can get <laughs> to talk about that another time. But that's all we got for Tomahawk Talk. Find us on our podcast. I know I keep failing to mention it, but... Find us on our podcast. If you've missed any bit of tonight's show, we do post them on Apple, Spotify, Google, or the Google Podcast platform, any platform where you can find podcasts. Just look up Tomahawk Talk and you will find us. So listen to us there. And for myself, for Austin, for Sebastian, for Jacob, for Max, for Bell, thank you for listening to Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. We'll see you next week.